0: Welcome to Raising Standards with Rhiannon Evans and Matt Smith, a true Roman history podcast for true Romans. Hail
1: Caesar.
2: Welcome to Raising Standards, an occasional rewatch podcast in which we take a fond look at HBO's Rome. I'm Rhiannon Evans.
1: And I'm Matt Smith. This is season two, episode eight, a necessary fiction. It was written by Todd Ellis Kessler and directed by Carl Franklin. In this episode, Octavian pushes back against promiscuity and the tenuous alliance with Mark Antony finally unravels, over both women and money. Both Verenus and Pullo lose everything they hold dear and the stage is finally set for a showdown in Alexandria. Hello, Rhiannon. Hey, Matt. I didn't think this episode was too bad. It's it's a lot of stage setting, this one. There's a, a lot that happens and I think that there was a lot that was overdue but at the same time, wow, this is moving quickly.
2: <laughs> yeah, I mean, you can see, I'm, I'm sure we've said this before, but the last few episodes of the series having to do a lot of tying up, and I think you're quite right, no spoilers really, that we're going to get a confrontation between Octavian and Antony eventually, mm. and this is setting the stage for that, as you say. We need to fill in with certain characters. Certain characters need to be introduced and to one another So, that we've got those relationships there. And you can imagine if they'd had the time, there would have been a lot more development of that.
1: Mm. So, the big development in this episode, I suppose, from the Imperial point of view, is Mark Antony and Octavian no longer playing nice. And to be fair, (laughs) was Mark Antony
2: ever really playing nice? (laughs) His
1: his version of nice. Uh, To be fair, I'm surprised it lasted as long as it did
2: yeah in what we know of the history and i think in the series it's very much a needs must yes they'll put up with each other for the sake of common enemies and while they consolidate power in their various regions there's no no love lost at all mm. quite literally
1: mm. In the meantime, uh, in the streets of Rome, things are moving really fast. We get the exit of two major characters. Timon packs up his wagon and goes off to the east. And Irene, a very tragic death for a, a character that didn't deserve anything that she got, I think, for the entire run of the show.
2: No, she's been a bit mean at times, but you know she's been put in very difficult situations. Do you get the feeling that, I mean, these are two fictional characters mm-hmm. and... They need to get on with the historical narrative, so they have to get swept to the side.
1: Yeah, maybe. They've got to get to the point where they want the show to be, and there's quite a lot of characters that, if you're sticking to history, which this show tends to try to do, are untouchable. There's a number of characters that need to be in place for the final episode, so I guess get rid of who they find expendable. Terrible way Mm -hmm. to look at it. Artie is lucky she didn't cop it, really.
2: Yeah, considering she should have been dead for years by this point, yeah. but she's too important to how they develop the series. And of course, we've got the kind of delicious, can you think of it in that way, weird situation of where she now stands in relation to Octavia mm. and Anthony So all of that going
1: on okay so we've got two interviews to get us started the first that we'll hear from is todd ellis kessler who is the writer of this episode a necessary fiction i spoke to him earlier in the season for the episode testudo et lepu lepu lepas and this interview was recorded at the same time so to some extent it picks up from there here's todd kessler Just picking up on something that you said earlier, for the writer's room, for the production of the second series, did you ever get to go to Rome and check it out, or were you always based in LA for it?
3: I was based in LA because those of us who were to finish up the writing of the last few episodes were in LA. I also had very two young children in school. Mm. I was in the position to relocate my life, and I didn't want to leave my family behind for months at a time. I was to go, I think it was near the end of production. For my second episode and then we had a family illness and i had to cancel last minute so i ultimately didn't get to go wow um, which was sort of frustrating i did spend some time in the edit room uh, here in los angeles (laughs) to help compensate for what i missed on set
1: do you think that going to rome would have changed your your perspective and how you you wrote the show i guess you would have got a sense of the sets to some extent and the costumes and everything like that and that might have fired off a few different neurons and it might be hard to say Really?
3: It might have. I mean, I generally as a writer don't believe that writers are that vital mm. to being on the set. There are times when it's preferable because we're there to provide, you know, backstop to the director and provide added point of view. But in general, we try to let the director hold the set and let them be our, you know, communicant. We we do a lot of what we call um tone meetings with directors in which we walk through every scene of the script and we explain everything that we intend from a scene. And the director makes notes and then merges that with his own ideas as he goes all forward into production. So in general, you know the directors we, we worked with were really fine directors and by and large did a very fine job, which is not to say that being on the set sometimes does change your point of view, both good and bad. I mean, for one, you get close to actors who you then want to service and you want to write better things or different things for them, Mm. which can throw off the balance of a show because you want to be objective and you don't want to be too invested in any one character or an actor. And actors on the set do like to approach writers to pitch them ideas for their characters, which may not always be good ideas, and then that's awkward. It is that double-edged sword. I would have loved being there just because of the experience of being on the set you do absorb a lot. You do feel the energy. But the other thing that happened is in the last few episodes, Bruno Heller, who was there in Rome at the time, decided that certain actors or certain storylines weren't working as well as we'd originally planned. And so there was a, a good deal of rewriting in the last few episodes that he did on everyone's episodes, because he felt that that helped them move more smoothly. And I don't think he could have made those judgment calls if he hadn't been there on the set in Italy and decided things had been changing on the ground and he wanted to compensate for it.
1: Okay, that's interesting. Do you, do you know what changed in particular or what would have been different?
3: I honestly can't recall a lot of the specifics. I can tell you one, well, there was one, this is small and anecdotal, not significant in any way, but I had written the scene for uh, Mark Antony's entrance into Alexandria and his reunion with Cleopatra. And from my research and from my imagination, the scene was written so that the doors of her private sanctum open, revealing Cleopatra in a swimming pool filled with milk yes. and rose petals.
1: Yes, yes, yes.
3: And she plays sort of a feline approach in her seduction when he first meets her. Mm-hmm. And evidently, either because of production or disinclination there was ultimately no swimming pool of milk or no roses. <laughs> and merely the door's open and she's sitting there on a chair or standing before him in her splendor. And it's a much simpler scene. Yeah, And I was a little heartbroken because I had so fallen in love with my own version that was based on the true story.
1: Mm. It was very subdued. She was over standing against the wall at the side. And I think her um, her son, Caesarian, Caesarian is is sitting Caesar's. on the throne playing with a ball.
3: And again, those are judgment calls you leave to them, you know, because sometimes they're just not practical. Yeah. But I had felt that Cleopatra was known for making an entrance. Mm. We knew how she presented herself to Julius Caesar, you know, uh, in season one and in real life. And we knew of her entrance into Rome. And so I just felt we had to give her an equivalent uh, entrance into the life of Mark Antony. It just wasn't meant to be.
1: Yeah. Considering all the women in Mark Antony's life at that point, you really need to make an impression, I guess. <laughs> had
3: its choice, yes. Yeah.
1: Yeah. In your second episode, you've got the death of Irene, Pullo's wife, which was brutal. She got poisoned to death by Gaia and died while pregnant. Why? So close to the end of the show, did you decide to give Pulo an unhappy ending, essentially, like that?
3: We wanted to put both Pulo and Varinus in desperate positions. Mm. And we wanted them, ultimately, to meet up at the very end. And both of them, we'll say, freed from a lot of their other responsibilities. They were, once again, two men, isolated and alone, who have each other. Okay. And so, part of that was to, I would say, parallel some of the heartache that Varinus has gone through. We wanted to cut Pulo free from bliss. And I think anytime you have characters in a series who become comfortable in their happiness, they become less interesting. Mm. Mm. And so conflict and trauma, obviously, are the tools of the dramatist. I think we decided then to go for it.
1: Yeah, yeah. I guess at the same time, you've got Varinus going through uh, the betrayal from his daughter who has been helping out uh, Memeo, who's a, a rival boss so, sorry just one side thing the uh the whole storyline of the crime syndicates there are a lot of people involved especially directors who had worked on the sopranos and i was wondering if that's the kind of influence that was bleeding through at the time
3: <laughs> I-, I wish i could say that was uh, <laughs> deliberate no it wasn't it was merely coincidental because hbo tends to favor the directors they work with they tend to be part of the family i'll stay in the family. It really, it- It wasn't part of of any of the planning (laughs) at all. No, it was merely more the discovery of what the underworld in Rome looked like. Mm. You know, there were always stories of how they were burning down someone's home and then they would show up with the hose or with buckets to be paid before they would even douse the house. Exactly, yeah. Those kinds of extortion stories. I think those things gave rise to let's really build out the world of of the mob here. Yeah. Uh, and And it gave Varinus particularly a role to play when they were no longer able to do battle scenes. We needed them to have a life and to have a career, and we couldn't keep sending them out into the battlefield. We knew they needed something else. And what better occupation for a former soldier than to be sort of a mercenary or mob boss at the service Mm. of the royal families, which from what I understand is true, which was that these these groups did have allegiances, and, and that the Aventine had their gang, or each region of Rome had their respective police force, tribe, mafia, if you will, and those people did pay homage to certain members of the of the aristocracy.
1: Mm-hmm. I have a question also about Octavian's storyline in this episode, and, and what it's it's building up to as well. You introduced the, the concept of his moral code, and what he thinks a marriage should be, and how women should act and people should act generally in society and promiscuity. And I love how, one, that is close to the history books. I mean, we don't get it from Caesar now, from Augustus, but that will be a big part of his reign, his morality laws. And also what's happened in the show with his mother and Mark Antony and his sister and Agrippa, you can see what set him on that path. So kudos to you and, and your fellow writers for, for drawing all of that together.
3: I think we cheated history a little bit because we opened with a speech on Women's Day, I think it was called. Yes. Um, which really <laughs> didn't wasn't instituted till later in his reign. Uh, but we decided to introduce it earlier, didn't seem like a huge leap in history, that uh, he talks about plans that he will be instituting mm-hmm. for chastity or whatever, uh, monogamy. But of course, given that our show was something of a soap opera, it did seem to set us up for exposing the hypocrisy, you know, that was going on all around him. Yeah, you it, know, and of course, it's, you know,
1: it's overlaid with the women in his family uh, <laughs> being dodgy. <laughs> so, exactly. Uh, yeah. Exactly.
3: His mother was his mother was hardly chased. You know, interestingly, when I had done some research into the characters of Atia and Sevilla, I think history has them backwards. This was, of course, they were created before I joined the show. But Atia, from what I'm told, who died earlier, much earlier than we have her living, that she was much more of the Sevilia noble chase character. And Sevilia, from what I read, what little there was, I think implies that she herself was much more the one to cat about and be a little more promiscuous. Mm. And I don't even remember why or how, you know, when Bruno wrote the show originally, how he set them as they were. But We now live with them as who they are on screen.
1: Yeah. uh, One bigger female character who is not in this season, who played a big part in history, is uh, Mark Antony's wife, Fulvia. So he was married at the time. There's a scene in which Mark Antony and Octavian and Lepidus are discussing who they're going to put on their hit list and who's going to be killed, and Artia chimes in with a couple of names there that she wants on the list, and that is the sort of thing that Mark Antony's wife, Fulvia, did. So she, uh, quite famously, when Cicero's hands were nailed on the door of the Senate there, uh, she took his head, pulled his tongue out, and pierced it with her hairpins. She was very vindictive against uh, Cicero, Mark Antony's wife she actually got resistance going against octavian later on during the civil war so that was kind of like an interesting character that was never in the show but part of her storyline was taken by Atia, i think Uh, i think so Um, you know
3: again with all these historical shows you end up having to um combine characters Mm. drop characters because you just simply don't have the bandwidth to present all of them and they were all of them were married so many times and, and marriages were legal conveniences and they weren't necessarily the romantic relationships or, or whatever the weddings that we see today yeah you know even just dealing with his fake marriage to Octavia these are just hard things to shoehorn in with so much else going on at that point
1: yeah yeah well Octavian was actually married at this point as well. And he left his first wife. I liked how you showed the introduction of Livia, because this is the first episode that she appears in. Uh, And and it's interesting that this late in the game, you decided to still introduce her. And it was a very jarring kind of way. Caesar, meet Livia. Hello, how are you? Would you like to be married to me? We'll sort it out with your husband. To make matters worse, in in real life, IRL, uh, she was pregnant at the time with her second child. (laughs) Oh,
3: wow. Yeah. who, who, Who was the father of the child? Her husband. Her husband at the time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, remember that. So, yeah.
1: so she has, a, so she's already got one son, which is Tiberius. She'll, she was pregnant when she married Octavian. That son was named Drusus. Yeah, so she was pregnant at the time and, and he essentially made a new arrangement and broke it off. And it was interesting how you, um, you put that in the, pretty much the exact same scene where he's, he's talking to the women about morality.
3: <laughs> right, exactly. And I think also, if I remember vaguely, we were all so aware of like Claudius and how they presented Livia, who mm. was the dragon woman from the start. And so it's something kind of fun about meeting her seemingly innocent and with such a sort of a non-presence when we first meet her. She's not nearly the that she will become one day.
1: Yeah, but you can see echoes of it, especially how she reacts later on when Octavian confronts his family about their behavior and punishes mm-hmm. them and sends them away. There's a bit of steeliness behind her. She very nonchalantly starts eating a bird's head <laughs> when prompted by Augustus. And I
3: think, if I'm not mistaken, because I don't, I, it's been so long since I watched other episodes, I think we have in the subsequent episode he introduces the idea of bondage to her.
1: He says, I need some violence in order to enjoy sex. He, he says that just quite casually, and she right. she goes with it. She goes, I'm, mis- I'm here for your pleasure, Caesar.
3: Exactly, that she knows what is necessary yeah. to do. Um, she's not shocked by the proposition.
1: Yeah, yeah. Did the character of Livia, do you know if that was introduced because that was a point where you, you were planning for what was the future of the show?
3: No, I don't think so. I don't remember that being a particular strong aspect. I think that we were focused a lot on that season three would really be largely set in Alexandria. Mm. Because we knew that Augustus's reign was not that eventful. We didn't want to spend a lot of time watching Marcus Agrippus design aqueducts you know, and the building of Rome, which, you know, is obviously dramatic for the city of Rome, but not great television. Mm. And so we felt the better drama would be building up to the final confrontation between Mark Antony and Cleopatra with, with Octavian. Uh, and so we really wanted to go into that world. Also, it was a chance to walk into a new world that we hadn't seen already, if people were starting to get a little tired of the court in Rome. Yeah, But because it was early in the second season when all this happened, we didn't have the time really to go in depth about what we were playing otherwise for the third season.
1: Yeah, other than the broad brushstrokes kind of thing. Exactly. Yeah. If you had a third season now, what would you have been looking forward to?
3: I certainly think the the story of Cleopatra and her son, Caesarea. I mean, I I definitely had loved all of the rumours about what happened to him. Mm. Did he escape? Was he killed? Is history credible as to what happened to him? Did he emerge somewhere in anonymity? I, I always thought that was interesting to sort of explore more of that. Don't remember too much more about what I was thinking of at the time because we were so immersed in that second season. It was so involving just to get those scripts up on their feet once and then twice, Yeah, um, having torn up so much material. I think we may have talked more about Palestine, but I don't remember exactly where we were headed because we knew we couldn't get so far as to Jesus Christ. Well, that would have been, if, you know, if the audience had had the patience to go for another four more seasons, maybe. Yeah, we might have gone with time in there. We might have gone back to that world, but but I don't remember too much about it.
1: Yeah, just uh, I do like the final fight scene that you've got between Pullo and the other gangs. It very much struck me as you know pure gang warfare. Uh, one, I love that you've got Gaia standing off to the side and very much participating with like a, a gladiator's axe called a, a Securus. That was just bad. I really like that. And Polo biting Memeo's tongue out.
3: Oh, right. That was savage. That was brutal. You don't see that coming.
1: Oh, not at all. Because he doesn't say a word. He doesn't say a word. Hand out for a handshake. And I go, nah. It's something in his eye. Something in his eye. And it's just...
3: (laughs) Yeah, it was pretty grisly. Even watching it again the other day, I had a hard time (laughs) watching it with my family, too. Um, And I think a lot of that... If I remember, a lot of that came from the director and the stunt crew. Yeah. I didn't choreograph, and I don't believe Bruno also, I didn't choreograph all of the moves in that whole fight sequence. Mm. I think it was set up to be the, jo- the sharks and the jets, and they have at it. <laughs> you know, as you said, George Lucas style. <laughs> and then they fight. <laughs> and then they fight, Exactly.
1: That was writer Todd Kessler and now we'll hear from the episode director Carl Franklin uh, who began his career in Hollywood as an actor before shifting to directing and now he's involved with various streaming projects such as Dharma and Mindhunter. Those are both for Netflix. So how did you get into directing? Why the shift from acting to directing? You know,
0: it, it's it's an old familiar theme, you know, um... It's gotten a lot better here uh but it was tough on a black actor man back in the day there wasn't a whole lot in the 70s which is when i was uh doing most of my work and i was a sidekick from pretty much most of you know the stuff i did mm-hmm. um, and i wanted to try to you know create something because every time I, I i was lucky i actually you know was was a regular in three different uh series but they never ran long but every time I would be back out, like I just started all over again. You didn't have real legitimate stars. You had had Sidney Poitier in the 60s, and then it got in the 70s. It was um, primarily Billy D was, uh, you know, kind of had some success and James Earl Jones, but basically the real big roles were going, you know, the guys like Jim Brown, football player, and Richard Pryor, who was a comic. And, you know, that was kind of the case, really, until... Uh, Denzel, you know, hit uh, in some time in the 80s. Um, but, you know, it was uh, it was a different world. Um, and so I just wanted to try to get some more stability. And so I wrote a script, ended up having to lose a lot of money in trying to make it because I somebody else uh, was going to direct it. And they kind of burned me. And so um, I ended up losing a lot of money, but I hadn't lost a bug. So I you know enrolled at the AFI because I still wanted to make movies. Um, mm. and fortunately, knocking on wood, it worked out.
1: Yeah, yeah, and it it sounds like um, if you want to see the stories that you want to see, you've got to make it yourself. Is that the point that you're at now with the industry?
0: Yeah, I mean, you know, and that's hard, you know, that's mm. hard. You know, the big issue with film is that it's so expensive, you know, to make a movie. You know, other art forms, you know, if you are a singer, you know, you can – sing something and people can hear it and oh yeah i get it and you know if you play an instrument but for a movie if you're gonna do that and show them something you know beyond the script uh you gotta hire somebody to shoot it or shoot it yourself you gotta get wardrobe and do what they call a little sizzle reel but that's Mm -hmm. expensive. that's the issue that's one of the reasons why film has always been kind of a cadillac kind of (laughs) club in some ways you know And not a lot of folks have had the opportunity. Nowadays, with streaming, with uh, digital, people are shooting films on their iPhones and whatever, you know, people being very creative. And so there's a lot more. More people are having access to the medium and you're going to see more Mm. different kinds of stories told because it's, it's not as expensive as it used to be.
1: Can I ask you then, what took you to Rome? How did you get involved with directing an episode of that?
0: The line producer was a guy named John Melfi. And John had been our production coordinator on, um, I think he was with us on One False Move. I know he was definitely with us on Laurel Avenue, which was HBO's first miniseries. We did that. Uh, Hmm. So I knew him from then. He was a very young guy then. And so he evidently spoke with, I think my wife may have spoken with him. And then by chance, you know, well, what what about Carl? Why don't you have him come over? And, you know, so, because I hadn't done any TV at that point, I don't think. Trying to remember, mm. Rome was uh, and I, you know, I loved that show, man. I, I had, I didn't do the first season, I didn't do anything the first season. But you'd seen it. I had seen it. To me, for that genre, you know, the kind of sword and sandal historical dramas, it was the best of any of those <laughs> I've seen. I mean, I liked I Claudius, which had 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 uh, played back in the seventies, but I Claudius was, you know, was shot all on studio on tape, and they couldn't really. It was PBS, as, you know. The we we watched it on the public broadcasting system over here, as opposed to one of the commercial, you know, networks. And you know, but really, I thought that Rome was the best of those of that genre since Spartacus, because it, it was HBO. Rome, you know, you think of all of the intrigue that was going on in terms of the you know the characters and and, and what it represented culturally you also think about the violence and you think about the sex and you think about all the craziness that happened in Rome and you could show all of that on Mm -hmm. HBO. So it was a much bigger, a much more uh, production value rich experience.
1: But when you went over there, the show was, was wrapping up, your episode was third to last. Did you realize that going in, did that give you a different sense of what you were trying to do with the episode and, and what you needed to achieve? no i
0: mean still there's the story the the script itself you know I still had to be true to that i felt that they unfortunately you know bruno heller was the writer uh showrunner and a very good writer and showrunner they had had to compress i think they knew at that point that uh, they'd been canceled that was a whole mistake i think that hbo made and I, I don't know i think it had something to do with a partnership with the bbc or something i don't remember how it actually worked out but they debated about still trying to keep the show going because what they hadn't anticipated was the first day of the DVD sales had sold out. And it was just fantastic, man. And they had spent, you know, the lion's share of the money had already been spent on those those incredible sets. It just, man, it was all at Chenechita. And uh, I think it took up the whole of the studio a lot, man. I mean, it was just, uh, it was a really magnificent uh, set. Mm. Well, they built like the uh, forum, I believe was like Mm. two thirds of the actual scale of the real forum. Really impressive. And then the Aventine where the, you know, the gangs hung out, that was interior exterior stuff. I mean, you would literally walk down the street and then into a bar. Wow. You know, you just don't see that, you know.
1: How much freedom did you have with where you were going to set the scenes that you needed to shoot could you say i want to shoot this one inside i want to shoot this one outside i want to shoot this over here did you have a lot of freedom when it came to that
0: well you know they had established these characters as you say you know i was the third from the final episode and so the the gangs had already been well established Mm. uh characters and their their environments had been well established and so I, I didn't have a lot of freedom there, no, because, you know, those scenes were designed to take place in those places where they were shot. And that was all fine with me because the sets were so great. You know, um, there was a little bit of a in the exterior where the robbery takes place, because there's a thing where um, I guess it's um, Mark Anthony's gold or, or is, it, is it Octavian's gold? I guess it's stolen. By, I think it's um, both the, of theirs at that point. <laughs> yeah, yeah, stolen by Mimeo and, and the guys and uh and, and, and uh, Pulo have to go to try to get it back. And so when that robbery took place, you know, there, there weren't a lot of places. There. I had heard that they had shot some outside of Chinchita on locations of, of where, I don't know where. This was not an option as I understood at that time. So we shot on the back lot in this one particular area. That, that worked very
1: well, I thought. What do you remember of the episode specifically and, and how the, the shooting of it took place? You know, the scene that sticks out most
0: to me is the scene where Varinas finds out that it's his daughter who has betrayed him. Oh, wow. Literally chokes her. And when Pulo is there, you know, I mean, that scene when she tells him that she betrayed him and that his wife never loved him, you know, that to
1: me was like probably the most emotional of the scenes that, uh, that I worked on I spoke to Corral Amiga recently and she's the young lady who was playing um Verena's daughter. Oh uh, yeah. And and she spoke of that scene. It'd be interesting to get your perspective on on the scene dealing with somebody so young and Kevin McKidd being so imposing and how the dynamics went down on set between those two. Well, you know, she um
0: she hadn't done anything like that in the series she hadn't been called upon to really, you know, go deep emotionally. Uh, and so I think there was some doubt as to whether she could do it. But, you know, she delivered, man. I mean, it was, uh, I remember that that like, you know, she, she suddenly surprised everybody. The actors were very, very generous with each other. There weren't a lot of egos. I don't remember anybody being, you know, like a problem, like on some sets, you know, where you can have an actor that's a total star, and, or they think that, that they are, or whatever. And I found that Kevin and Ray were just very supportive of her, and they recognized that she came to play, and she did, she delivered that day.
1: Yeah, and the other thing about your episode is, despite it being so close to the end, uh, your episode introduces Livia. uh who who if this went on to i claudius timelines would have been very important to the show (laughs) yeah because livia
0: was one of the great characters in i claudius as you recall yeah 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 to shame in terms of of how horrible she could be you know yeah you saw that she was going to be, you know, when she ate the head off of the uh the
1: cooked bird. Did you have any thought into, you know, how you introduce somebody at that point in the show who needs to have an impact but you don't have the time to give it to her? I didn't because, you know, actually I felt that the what we had,
0: one there was text that introduced her that that hinted. It was one of those things where you kind of would have to know the history in order mm. to fully appreciate who this character was and what this character was going to be capable of, but the coldness of the fact that number one, I believe she had a child already. She had proven fertility. Very clinical. Yeah, married and then basically said, you know, he'll understand. The husband wants. I mean, take his wife and you know whatever. <laughs> the, the emperor wants her. And and then when he when there was a scene where Octavian sat with her and reminded her that he would be beating her. But it wouldn't be out of anger. It was going to be a sexual thing. It gave him pleasure to beat her. And mm. she accepted that. But it was really just the biting off of the thing that lets you know, oh, she's a little ill here. She's, you know, this, is, this chick is a little sick here. And really, we couldn't stand a whole lot more because she wasn't going to get an opportunity to show who she really was or to grow into who she really could be. And so really, it was just enough to kind of titillate, to get people, you know, whoa, this is a little strange. She's kind of a co-partner in this whole kind of sick, you know, scene that uh, Octavian is uh, got going here, you know. What was really cool, though, about Rome, man, is we used to pass Octavian's tomb on the way to Cenecita. I had mm. an apartment on the Via del Corso. We would go the Appian Way, man, you know, to work. Which was like, wow.
1: <laughs> get you in the mood for it. Yeah. The other scene that sticks out in your episode is the street brawl at the end. Mm. I want to hear about that and, and staging that and, and what it involves to have um, Pullo bite out Memeo's tongue.
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That was, that was my invention, to have him bite out the tongue. They were going to do something where he, I can't remember how we were going to get rid of the tongue, but I thought it would be great if he just bit it out. You know, as I remember, that was my, maybe I'm lying. I don't know. I think it was. <laughs> but we only had a day and a half to shoot that. And we got some good action in that. You know, the coordinator, the stunt coordinator was quite good. You know, I don't remember his name because I only worked with him on that one day. But he was very good. You know, and we, you know, had we planned some things. And, you know, he was just a, really, he was good. We had some good players. You know, the thing about action is that just to get the right angle first off you've got to have people who are handy so usually means stunt stunt person stunting in for a, a regular person Well, now in this case a lot of the players actually did their own stunts because it wasn't anything really spectacular it was just a fight with weapons but the choreography is just to get that down correctly is important you know and that's what takes time you know, when you're shooting a scene, like you look at these action scenes that you see, you know, they'll have a hundred do- a day schedule or whatever, you know, because of all of the movement that, it, that is required, all of the moving parts in terms of equipment, et cetera, that is necessary to make that work. And so in our case, you know, we didn't have a whole lot of equipment elements that had to come into play. It's just all of the folks getting the fights down right, rehearsing the scene so nobody gets hurt, so it looks convincing and looks real and all of that. That's that's what takes the time. Me, for the most part, especially in television, I don't shoot a whole lot of takes. I might have shot like three takes each or whatever,
1: you know, for that. And, And
0: they just were nailing it, man. We got very lucky with the performances.
1: There was a lot involved that I, I realized must be very tricky in that. Not just the tongue biting out, but uh, Pullo's next action is is picking up an axe and throwing it into a man's yeah. chest. And, and I think that was the man who was um, sleeping with Verena. So a, yeah. a, a bit of justice there. And also you've got Gaia, uh, played by, I think, uh, Zuleka Robinson, uh, running around kicking ass as well, which yeah. was great a to woman- see a, a woman actually getting in on the action.
0: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Zuleika, yeah. Historically, you know, Herodotus talked about the Amazons, remember the Amazonian warriors that they didn't believe existed. And then someplace in kind of Southern Russia, they found the tombs. They found the grave Mm. with women, you know, buried with horses and their legs are bowed probably from years of riding horses and with weapons. You know, they found these graves with these women. And so, you know, Herodotus once again
1: is proven right, you know, (laughs) he's proved right occasionally (laughs) not so much on others did Rome spoil you going forward because I I know that it's kind of unique for the, the scale of production you've done a lot of television since how did it inform you going forward that experience
0: well by that time I had done enough work in film to know that there are going to be experiences that are just great experiences and there are going to be some that are not going to measure up rome Mm -hmm. was a wonderful experience and you know actually i have to say that i think after that the next thing i did might have been the pacific and again i was working with an incredible line producer and so Mm -hmm. money on that show and i I did that pelle landing which was a big you know production which was great to be able to do that but it was it was again tony toe was our uh, line producer and he again was someone we worked with back on one false move and then on uh, laurel avenue you know, these are classy guys, you know, who set a very, very good work environment. Um, thing about Rome, man, was the crew. I mean, you, you know, Italians, man, you know, we were crying and shit the last day when I'm getting ready to leave, you know, because you get close to people, you know, just uh, they're emotional people. And I mm. am too. And so it was, uh, <laughs> yeah, it was nice.
1: Thanks very much to Todd Kessler and Carl Franklin for their time two interviews for this episode. That's quite a bonus. And I'm sure it would be very enlightening to our discussion if I can remember the slightest thing of what we talked about or had edited those interviews beforehand.
2: Good to have other voices that are yes. chip in, especially those in the middle of it all.
1: Yeah, very much so. So shall we talk about the episode? Indeed. The opening of this episode, I liked quite a lot from a couple of standpoints, but not so much for the The graphic sex but i can see why it had that in there it opens with octavian addressing a group of roman women they seem to be a light noble women encouraging them to be virtuous to set a good example and women of the households and foreshadowing that later on in his career he intends to bring in laws and rewards for those who are virtuous and display these good qualities it is the women of rome
2: Like the she-wolf that suckled Romulus and Remus, who have raised a nation of wise statesmen and invincible warriors. While
1: all of this is way too soon for this point in Octavian's life, this is something that is quite important to him later on as Emperor Augustus, isn't it?
2: Yeah, none of this appears until 18 BCE, so we're in the 30s here. Nobody is, as far as we know, talking about this at this point. Although I guess you could say it's in the air. There's a general sense in a lot of Roman historical texts, starting with and and maybe earlier than Sallust writing in the 40s, that there's an immorality that has caused the decline of Rome and is responsible for civil wars. Mm. So uh, for Sallust, a lot of it revolves around luxury, the import of luxury. Women get caught up in that a bit as well. I didn't hate the fact that they're bringing it up here, although historically it's it's a bit earlier than we know about. I mean, certainly if you look at the biography of Augustus by Suetonius, Octavian, as he is at this point, is far from sexually moral himself. He's basically being a slut at this point, <laughs> although it wouldn't be beyond a politician to be a hypocrite, of course. I think what I found a bit weird about this scene more than that is this gathering of women as if to hear him from the podium. I don't know how that would come about. Like, how did he get them to be there? And it was like some local election going on. It was you know? like he, he was
1: schmoozing with donors or something like that, wasn't it? Yeah.
2: Yeah, it, it just didn't seem to match up with anything. It seemed like a convenient way of doing that. I guess it got the message over that he's going for a policy which is directly in opposition to the way the women of the series are behaving.
1: Mm. At the same time, it does give him a useful opportunity to be introduced to Livia, and this is the first time that we we see her in this version of Rome. It was treated as being rather abrupt and transactional. She is pointed out as being a mother at the time already to Tiberius, married and a mother. But that kind of all carries over to the extent where she was also pregnant. They gloss over that in this
2: can you remind me, does she have to get divorced in the series to marry Octavian?
1: They mention his husband and Octavian indicates, oh, he's a good Republican person. That won't be an issue. Uh, so no. he'll arrange it. So yeah, yeah it, was, it was very transactional. Would you like to be my wife? She seems very flattered by the idea as does her mother.
2: Yeah. I mean, I thought there were lots of interesting things going on here. The one you mentioned is missing out her pregnancy, her second son, Drusus. There has to be a kind of special dispensation given for her to marry because you're meant to wait 10 months after the birth of any child mm. by another husband to make sure that it's definitely the child of the person you're married to at the time. Yeah, And there were always rumors that Drusus might have been Augustus's or Octavian's, which were kind of fostered by the fact that Drusus had died younger than Tiberius, Livia's first child, who will become emperor. Mm. Stick with me here. And... Partly along the lines of if you die young, then you're likely to have a better reputation. And Tiberius ends up with a very bad reputation. So they kind of want Drusus to have been Augustus's son. There's a sort of wish fulfillment there. All of that is missed out here because the pregnancy doesn't exist. So they've decided to cut through that, maybe in the interests of we haven't got time for that in the drama. What it does is, you're right, it is extremely transactional. We have very limited sources, but there's no indication that he just saw her and decided I'll marry her. Um, There was probably more of a relationship going on. Certainly, there's an indication that they're having sex before she's divorced in our sources, or they suspect that. And that's not really happening here. It's kind of instant marriage. And because she comes from the right background, she does come from, you know, in reality, comes from a very aristocratic family. So it is a good match for Octavian. And by the way, I mean, it goes on beyond the series, but all the indications are that it was a marriage of affection. Mm. Uh, Avian and Olivia don't have any children together, and that would have been grounds, easy grounds for divorce in Rome, but he doesn't divorce her. I've got so many thoughts in my head mm. that I've, I've lost my thread of it here. But yeah, the transactional nature is a bit more than I think it was in reality, even by ancient Roman standards. Interesting that they get rid of the pregnancy, which whatever the reason was, and I think it was probably plot reasons, but it does make her potentially more virtuous in Roman terms than our historical texts suggest.
1: I think it makes her less complicated.
2: Yeah, I think that is the real reason. I think think I'm overanalyzing it, but that's the effect it has. If you know the sources and know what actually her situation was then it looks like they've sliced that complication out and therefore she doesn't complicate what Octavian has just been talking about, mm. which it would if they'd gone along with what we know of Livia. The other thing that I want to say about this on a purely personal note is Mycenas is just, a, he's such a git, isn't he? Can I say that? <laughs>
1: yeah, yeah, definitely. <laughs> just every
2: time I see him, I dislike Mycenas more. He's just the epitome of toxic masculinity. He's awful. You know, if you want to compare that, I can't remember if we've talked about this at any point, with what we know of Mycenaeus. There's a certain amount of based on what the sources tell us, which is largely this very louche character. You know, he he loves luxury. He's, his family is supposed to have come from Etruscan kings, and that is something that he sort of lives up to and enjoys, that he's not interested in becoming at least officially involved in politics. He never takes an official role. He's always an informal advisor to Octavian. But that he was known for this kind of extravagance and even ancient texts being very sexist and gendered talk about him as being effeminate in the way he dresses and his gestures. So they're playing on that a little bit because, you know, he does like his luxury, I think, in this series, and that I think is contrasted with Agrippa. Mm -hmm. But they've also made him a real lad. Yes. A real nineties lad.
1: Yeah, (laughs) yeah, definitely. That's a good way to put it. He in this episode seems to have vetted the marriage possibilities for Octavian. So I, I take it he was asked to do that. He refers to Livia as a nice piece when he points her out.
2: It is treating it like a real meat market. And actually what you've just said makes me think that one thing this scene is doing is showing how much influence Mycenas does, which mm. seems to have been the case. Influence over Octavian.
1: Mm-hmm. Okay, so we'll talk more about Livia at a later point, I think. But for now, we'll move the action to Timon quickly leaves Rome. I don't actually think he has a line. It's his wife and children who have the parting words here, and he, he's just pulling a wagon with a strained, I just killed my brother look on his face. Mm-hmm. Oh, no, one of his kids asked, will we see Uncle not appearing in this episode when we get to Jerusalem?
2: <laughs> you want his name? Levi.
1: Levi. Mostly his wife talking about the virtues of Timon, And then off they go out of this series.
3: Papa, when we get to Jerusalem,
2: will Uncle Levi be there?
1: Maybe. Maybe not.
2: Look, I mean, it's awful that in this dispute over how to deal with Roman power, he has killed his brother. In a sort of weird way, he gets a happy ending because he gets out of it all. I mean, he's been embroiled in, in being a sort of... Uh, fix-it character for Attia, things could have gone much worse.
1: Yes, they could have taken that character in a very different way. His storyline brought up a lot of questions about minority religion in Rome at the time, and also nationality, national pride, independence. He became a real people's front of Judea kind of character without the Monty Python comedy associated with it. There was the
2: potential for a whole line on ethnic difference and religious difference in particular, Mm -hmm. which I think they couldn't spend a lot of time on in the way that this series ended up being resolved. Yes. But you assume that there was going to be more of that.
1: Mm, Yeah, definitely. Uh, Now we continue an interesting little thread with Mycenaeus and Posca. Of all people uh, having a discreet meeting, uh, in Macenus's third best litter, which I did like, I also liked how after a rocky marriage in the previous episode or or a tearful marriage at the very least, uh, Jocasta seems to have embraced as she calls him, um, my little caramel, (laughs) 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 which is both, uh, nice and touching, but also slightly racist. But hey, that's right. Yeah, I guess it is. You
2: know, I wasn't even thinking of that.
1: Um, (laughs) I think it was going on his Mediterranean complexion.
2: (laughs) But then presumably she'd have a Mediterranean complexion too. True, true. A little bit odd, except.
1: Except she's British. Of
2: course, these are British actors, so they don't. So that leads us down a whole line that we haven't really addressed throughout this. (laughs) You know, they're Brits, not Italians. Yeah. Jocasta and Posca also seem to have a marriage based on affection, although helped by the fact that his wheeling and dealing means he can keep her in the manner to which she wishes to become accustomed. But you know what? Jocastus had a really hard time. She kind of deserves it.
1: Mm, mm. And in regards to this plot, literally and figuratively, Posca and Mycenaeus have going, which is to steal the money that Mark Antony and Octavian are going to be given as tribute uh, from Herod, see the previous episode wow, that's really dangerous of them. Is money worth that kind of danger? I I guess there's a price tag you can put on it.
2: I mean, Octavian's ruthless. Yeah. And Antony will just lash out at anybody who goes against him. So Mm -hmm. it's extremely dangerous and it doesn't really have many repercussions, does it?
1: It's not found out and it's unsuccessful, which I think is lucky for them. But yeah, it's a really dangerous thing to be doing.
2: Well, because it goes nowhere, I do wonder. I mean, I keep saying, "Oh, this is probably the victim of plots having to be cut short." But why well, bring if it up in the first in. place?
1: Yeah, exactly. Mm. Yeah,
2: I guess maybe to just say that really Octavian shouldn't trust anybody. Mm. You know, even Mycenas, who he clearly is trusting with choosing him a wife for him,
1: and even Agrippa, who is sleeping with his sister. Yeah, yeah. yeah. (laughs) It's all kind of very odd. But I did like that Posca is very cautious about speaking in front of the slaves that Mycenae has with him. Mycenae is quite dismissive of them. Posca Hmm. says that you, you know, the lower orders realize more than you think, which is true. Mm -hmm. He would know.
2: Yeah, yeah. And Posca has that insight, doesn't he? He's a kind of in between character he converses with both orders i guess mm. both, both statuses the very top and he knows what it's like to come from slavery i mean posca is eternally an interesting character and i don't know is there any fan fiction cuz there should be <laughs> <laughs>
1: it's not too late for a spin off the other thing in relation to this gold is that antony and octavian decide that varinus will oversee the transportation of it from ostia which is a nearby port to Rome, the uh, port of
2: Rome. Yeah. yeah,
1: why you wouldn't just send, you know, as much of the army as you can is a bit beyond me, but, you know, you need to somehow keep Varinus and Pullo relevant to all of the storyline.
2: Varinus is also a trusted character, I guess. He is such a straight character in essence, Yes, although things have gone off the rails a bit in this series. I think a bit like the way Mycenas is shown in that first scene, it does display to us that he's somebody that people feel they can entrust important things to.
1: And I, I think as Anthony or Octavian point out, he is somebody that they both equally trust.
2: Mm. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting all the way along, isn't it? This is Maybe this is obvious, but that Because we know there's already been conflict between Antony and Octavian, it's going to end up with a very fatal conflict. Mm. But all the way along, Varinus has gone between them both. From the very beginning, he's been trusted by Caesar, even though he's technically a Republican and wouldn't by nature he wouldn't be someone who lords the kind of way that Caesar is moving the Republic i.e. away from a Republic, yes. but he, he's also managed to be that in between for Antony and Octavian. I guess Polo is technically trusted even more by Octavian that he can be a kind of glue between these characters as they start to dissolve their alliance.
1: I mean, this is a a discussion that we've had many times before, I think, but this is all in spite of, you know, actions like catching Pompey and then letting him go. Mm. Remember Verenus did that. Caesar let him live because he is lucky. Mm -hmm. He has the gods on his side.
2: Yeah. Yeah, Well, look, you know, I've been reading Caesar a bit recently and Fortuna does come up, you know, the Roman goddess Mm. luck. Um, as a significant factor in campaigns, in life in general. So it sort of gels with that, but yeah, it's useful for the series that he's not killed off before things are done. <laughs>
1: well, yes. <laughs> Gaia gives Irene a tea with silphium in it to end the pregnancy and it kills her in the process. I'm not entirely clear if that was intentional for Irene to be killed by this tea or by the experience of miscarrying the baby. But it seems like Gaia doesn't begrudge that it happened.
2: Oh, Sylphium was known as a contraceptive, so it's a birth control, but I guess that might overlap with an abortifacient. Mm. I've never said that word out loud. Is that how you say it? It's very academic. It sounds right. Something that will bring on an abortion. It might well have been used. The evidence we have seems to suggest that apparently it also went extinct in antiquity, Mm. the Elder Pliny tells us. It was also used as an aphrodisiac. So go figure. Okay. I guess the technical side of it doesn't matter. The effect for the plot is that... I think you're right that there is a little bit of uncertainty as to what Gaia intends here. Certainly the loss of the pregnancy would, she hopes, put some kind of distance between Irene and Polo. She doesn't want that marriage cemented by the birth of a child, Mm. which would push her nose out of joint. Yeah. But killing her is a bonus from Kaya's point of view. It's horrible, isn't it?
1: Yeah, yeah. I I think from Guy's perspective, she just personally doesn't like Irene. Like in previous episodes, Irene has really treated her like a slave and lorded mm. over the fact that Irene is now the the woman of the house essentially mm. and Gaia must do what she says there's always been a kind of vagueness to Gaia as to what sort of slave she is or whose slave she is and is and what that means and who can punish her and who can have her and all this kind of stuff that has but been she bit... just
2: started off as a kind of someone who hung around in the Brothel, the collegium, or the brothel, or are they the same thing? I've never been clear on that either. I thought
1: it was like a tavern, yeah.
2: Brothel sideline.
1: Hmm, maybe. I think that was
2: implied. Yeah. It's all been a bit vague throughout, you're right. Um, but having said whereas-
1: that, she she didn't like how Irene treated her, and that's that was, I think, the main motive for doing this. And anything that eventuates with Pullo is a bonus. Terrible yeah. way to look at it, but yeah.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think this speaks to what we don't know because it comes from silence of dynamics between slaves or a slave and an ex-slave, mm. which is what Irene is. So trying to sort of map a way through that, but it also plays into the catfight that we see in soap opera all the time. And the series, I find it a bit disappointing that it can't really find a way to deal with female characters beyond that quite often. I mean, we do know of some instances of solidarity between slaves and ex-slaves. And we know more about that because they make tombs together. So I guess it would be nice to see some of that. I mean, what we do know, and maybe this speaks to Posca's statement a little bit earlier, is that free Roman people who owned enslaved people feared them all the time and thought that they were plotting against them. And that's not quite what Posca's saying, but but he's sort of saying, you know, they're not just pieces of furniture. They might actually act in some way if they hear something to their advantage. Mm. That's something free Romans feared. So, you know, the famous case in Tacitus of the whole household of hundreds of slaves being killed because one of them had killed a master just because you've got to show them is the idea. And And they are constantly to be feared and maybe they collaborated together. So anyway, I've got off the point a little bit, but I think there's a whole world that we know little about, but what we do know maybe reflects something a bit different that could have been shown here, but that's not what they chose to do. And, you know, I guess it is very dramatic. It's Mm. a dramatic way to get rid of the character of Irene.
1: Another part of this scene is that Pullo and Verinas are discussing how to manage the transportation of the gold shipment. As Pullo, I think, leaves the room, or as somebody leaves the room... They walk past Verena, who has been cleaning up outside the door. And clearly, in retrospect, has been listening in on all of this. Mm -hmm. I think this comes back to almost to what Posca was saying earlier, that the lower orders, uh, they hear more, they recognize more, they take in more than you think they do.
2: Yeah, I mean, it's the theme of this episode, I guess. mm. And she's already being led astray, isn't she? Being seduced by one of his enemies. She's kind of a spy within the household.
1: Yes, uh, willing to sell her father out to Memeo. A bit brutal. I don't know how she thinks that's going to end well. So when Irene dies, she asks that she is buried, not cremated, in an open field without any trees around, which I noticed that I didn't go with because there were trees behind him when he was praying. Oh, on. I know, but, but but in the wide shot, no trees. So, I uh, know, go figure.
2: You need to add that as a note on IMDb.
1: (laughs) Trivia. Annoying trivia. Yes. That was a nice nod, I think, to her being from somewhere else. That's another aspect of being a slave, I suppose. Slaves take their own religion with them to some extent, even though they travel to Rome.
2: Yeah. That's been forgotten Mm. mostly throughout. But yeah, she does have this Gallic background and she would have had customs and rituals that aren't really being observed except perhaps by her once she's she's in Italy.
1: From memory, way back in episode one or two, Pullo was on his way back to Rome and like found her.
2: That's what happened.
1: Yeah, yeah, they had a very tumultuous relationship. Well, he clearly loved her and I think that she grew to love him but do you remember him freeing her then killing her fiance? The, oh, yeah. The slave, yeah, just all that kind of lovely relationship kind of stuff that happened there. Okay, so Pullo is grieving this death, as you would expect. So Mascius, who likes to point out often in this episode that he's the third man, he takes over the gold shipment, and they are ambushed by Memeo and his men. We don't know that at the time. We find that out later. This comes back to Verena selling out her father. Memeo doesn't seem to have a, a great plan.
2: Nobody seems to know what to do next Unless this.
1: It's like Posca and Mycenas. They come up with this plan to take the gold, but do they honestly think they'll get away with it? Memeo comes up with this plan, actually takes the gold. What's the long game? Everybody in the Aventine seems to know that he's the one who took the gold. He's not being very discreet about it. There's a scene with him throwing it out to all the other mob bosses, you know, here you go, lads, this is what you want. Celebrate with me. Celebratory sex scenes with his guys that Varinus comes in on. There's nothing that says we're being discreet at all about any of this.
2: Maybe it just comes down to what somebody who used to work in prosecution told me, which is a lot of criminals are very stupid.
1: Yeah. Yep. Also, when he's talking to the other men of the Aventine, the other, like, mob leaders or whatever you want to call them, his rhetoric is essentially the same as Varinus, you know, come on, guys, let's all pull together, work together, we'll make the money collectively, and we'll be able to run the Aventine, and it's just like, how is that any different to what you were mocking Varinus for trying to pull off just a few episodes ago? You know,
2: it's a power grab, isn't it? Memeo just wants to be in charge.
1: Yes. I guess
2: thinking about it like that, maybe it's a sort of lower orders mirror of what's going to go on at the very top. Yeah. uh, Because whatever Octavian and Antony, well, Antony doesn't do very much of this, but whatever they claim to be offering the people, they want ultimate power for Mm -hmm. themselves. It is a power play.
1: You forgot Lepidus, but then again, so does he at
2: times. (laughs) Everyone forgets Lepidus.
1: I I do like that scene quite a lot where Antony and Octavian are discussing slash yelling about the fact that the gold has been stolen. Mycenaeus and Posca are trying not to look at each other and everybody is ignoring Lepidus (laughs) who is saying comments like, you know, I bet you it's the Gauls or things like that.
2: Yeah, yeah. He's, he's got completely the wrong end of the stick anyway. <laughs> and
1: then everybody leaves the room and Lepidus is kind of left there going, oh, well, I guess the meeting's over then. <laughs> he's, a, he's like the, the most disregarded person. And I actually think that might be his last scene in the series, Full Stop, which is kind of fitting off to Africa for him.
0: I'll tell you who it was. Gauls. I wager any amount of money it was Gauls. They breed like rabbits, you know. No notion of working for a living. Thieves, not a lot of them.
2: He does play a much bigger part in the history of this period. Uh, you know, he's actively involved in conflict. But a lot of our historical sources give us the impression that he was always a third wheel, and hmm. that certainly comes through the popular perception of him in as much as there is one. And, you know, it goes back to, I think, where they were... Dividing up the map. Do you remember that scene?
1: Yeah, last episode. Oh, let's
2: just give him the bit that doesn't matter Mm. to us of the Empire. He's always been that outsider in the the triumvirate.
1: They jump over the entire Sextus Pompey issue as well, and he he factored into that a bit. Mm. That's pretty much where he exited as well. That's okay. We don't need that kind of thing complicating this compressed storyline.
2: I mean, I'm impressed that he's there at all. You could get away with leaving him out, I suppose.
1: Yeah, for the comedy, I'm glad he's there.
2: (laughs) Oh, goodness. I can't remember whether they use the word triumvirate. I don't think they do. But if they did, then you need three people Yeah, triumvirate. But maybe that's not important.
1: I'm fairly sure they don't mention that word at all.
2: Not sure. I feel like I should watch more closely. I just assume that it's there, but it isn't necessarily, is it?
1: It is. At least once, and that's the newsreader, I think.
2: Ah, Mm. ah, interesting.
1: We get a scene now in which Octavian has invited all his friends and foes to dinner so he can confront them because he's finally been clued in on everything that's been going on by Mycenas, who I think is just trying to deflect any attention that might be coming to him as a result of this gold being stolen.
2: He's all out for himself, isn't he?
1: Yeah, yeah, definitely. So he sold out that Mark Antony is still sleeping with Atia. And uh, the new development from Octavian's point of view that Agrippa is sleeping with his sister Octavia. And Octavian also wants to introduce Livia to the family, I guess, in the same instance. Which I would not want to do because that's not a great impression to the person that I want to marry.
2: <laughs> what a family, eh? Yeah. yeah totally dysfunctional. Yeah. But look, she's not gonna back out of it, is she? No, she's a not. Power player.
1: She, she's not. Before they have that dinner though, he does say to her he might beat her occasionally for pleasure. Which lovely she seems to take in stride. Again, transactional.
2: Maybe I'm overreading again, but maybe that's a nod to I mean, he was supposed to have had affairs with lots of married women is what the sources tell us. There isn't anything about him having kinks, but that's a kind of updated version. Yeah, I don't know, maybe it's supposed to suggest that Livia is fine with it. She's fine with this kink, or maybe it suggests that women just put up with this antiquity. She's prepared to take it because of the powerful position it will put her in. Mm. It's It's a bit uncomfortable to watch.
1: Yeah. I think that that was another whole reason for it happening. Speaking of things that were uncomfortable to watch, the dinner scene probably was one of my favourite scenes of this episode. Uncomfortable viewing, very confrontational. Interesting to see how the power dynamics between Anthony and Octavian have flipped from earlier in this season when uh, the younger... Octavian just got a beat down from Mark Antony for showing too much lip, really. Um, Oh, literally. He beat him up. Yeah.
2: It's not even verbal assault. Yep,
1: definitely. And this episode almost goes into that territory again before Antony actually exercises some judgment and realizes just how powerful Octavian is now and how he can't raise a hand to him in that moment, in that moment.
2: You shall leave this city. Leave this city? You shall go east to your provinces and you shall not come back. Or else what, boy? You shall leave this city or I will declare our alliance is broken. I shall have this sad story told in the forum. I will have it posted in every city in Italy. And you know the people are not so liberal with their wives as you are. They will say you wear cuckold's horns. They will say your wife betrayed you with a low-born pleb on my staff. You will be a figure of fun. The proles will laugh at you in the street.
3: Your soldiers will mock you behind your back.
2: Look, this is definitely the case. And, of course, then he had decades to seal his reputation. But I like that they have flipped the power dynamic, that Octavian did become more powerful within Italy. Mm. But do you feel that they've shown us how that happens? I guess there's been a bit of a argy-bargy <laughs> technical word with the Senate, from Octavian. Yeah. Um, Is that what's happened? Maybe it doesn't much matter. It just has happened. But I think that if we were to follow some historical sources, you know, we'd have Octavian playing on Julius Caesar's name. The fact that Antony becomes more and more alienated by the Senate, so Octavian is kind of their chance to move around somebody who might be powerful. Also, he might be malleable because he's young. Mm. I think we saw some of that, didn't we? we? saw Cicero kind of intimating that.
1: Yeah, it's strange. I think it might just be the new actor playing Octavian, and he's not even new anymore, I think, at, at this stage, uh, seems to hold himself quite differently in a way that would make this more convincing. If it mm. was the younger actor, Max Perkis, still playing Octavian, I don't think that you'd be able to get away with it so much. I want to say that, you know, could it be that Octavian is more loved by the people of Rome and Antony can read a room, but that's not the perspective really, I don't think.
2: No, and also I think Antony, as he's depicted here, would have trouble believing that everyone didn't love him. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> He's arrogant. I mean, he's brilliant at it. Yeah, I, I'm just interested in whether you think we've been given enough historical narrative reasons for this change, because I think it is one that happens, but it probably doesn't happen as quickly as is shown here. And I'm not sure that we've been given. And I don't know, maybe Max Perkis would just have to change his demeanour to be persuasive, the first actor to play Octavian, but because we've got a different actor entirely in a way that's made easier. I think you're quite right that he does come over as much more confident, even more ruthless, kind of knows how to play people. In a way that we might not have seen earlier. Yeah,
1: yeah. He knows how
2: to stand up to Anthony.
1: Can we talk about Livia at this point? Uh, this is an actress named Alice Henley with very big Livia boots to fill. If we think back mm-hmm. to I Claudius, she's only got a couple of episodes to establish herself. I'm glad that the show, though, took the time to introduce her.
2: Well, it's interesting because this, of course, is the younger Livia, and we only get the kind of middle aged and elderly Livia mm. in I Claudius.
1: But you do kind of get echoes of maybe, if I can put it this way, the ruthlessness that character shows in both the way that she takes in stride everything that Octavian suggests and Mm. isn't phased by the family dynamics that are put in front of her and the way she nonchalantly just bites the head off a bird. Although maybe... That not unusual in rome
2: <laughs> well that's a nod to didn't the romans eat weird food i guess yeah uh, That yeah you know that they'd have whole carcasses of small animals the more i think about it i think they played that quite well because uh, of course as played by sean phillips she is immortal mm. as you know my favorite character my favorite depiction of anybody from rome on tv and in film i think but she is very powerful by that point She has a lot of social power, and she's very much depicted as the power behind the throne, riffing off Tacitus in particular. But here, of course, she can't be like that because she isn't in that position yet. So I think, I don't know how much they took into account, the I Claudius Livia, that this is kind of her genesis, that she would have to be quite cold, quite able to tolerate a very strange imperial family before she figures out how she fits into it. I mean, she's like a spider with a web in I, Claudius. Mm-hmm. She controls everything. She controls the deaths of a lot of characters in that series, but she's not there yet, obviously. So how would she have started out? Yeah, it's quite cleverly done.
1: I think she complements this version of Octavian quite well. I see a lot of you know them in each other, if I can put it that mm-hmm. way
2: if they they don't have the time to go on with this anyway, so maybe it doesn't matter. But maybe it explains what I said earlier about how we know that the sources, whatever however they depict Livia, and a lot of them are evil stepmothery vibes, the affection between her and Augustus seems to have been genuine. Mm. So if you're gonna depict Octavian as a sociopath, I don't think that's too strong a word, then you need Olivia who can and will cope with that, Yeah, you know, unless you're going to depict it as an unhappy marriage, which there are no signs of.
1: Yeah, that's right. It's good to see in this scene that everyone seems to have underestimated Octavian and they all realise that very quickly. In particular though, I'm very surprised that Agrippa isn't punished. I know that wouldn't have made sense in the history version of things, but in this version of the TV show,
2: you're right. It doesn't matter because they don't go on to that history, but Agrippa will eventually be rewarded by being married off to Augustus's one and only legitimate child, mm. his daughter, Julia. So if we were going to go on with that at all, then he needs to survive. Slightly facetiously, I'm worried by the amount of people you want punished in this series Verinus. A <laughs> yeah, you're right. It is We get this setup where it looks like they're really in trouble, mm. that they've betrayed or let down somebody who's very, very powerful. But it's kind of brushed over here, isn't it?
1: I don't want people punished. I'd expect them to be in the context of the show. That's why I said proceed.
2: <laughs> it is surprising. I think they get away with it because Octavian, in a way he's more like the way Livia gets depicted in I, Claudius. He's doing the chess thing, isn't he? Seeing a few moves ahead. That mm. Agrippa can be useful to him and therefore why get rid of him? I think that's what's going on.
1: Yes. Is yeah. that
2: noise in the background a problem? No. Okay.
1: But but also, you know, I I, I do think that there's a certain level oh. of, of friend... Sorry, just a sec. Mm.
2: Romeo, stop! He's <laughs> chewing the door snake. I thought he was chewing his toy. I'm just going to send him downstairs. <laughs>
1: oh, God. Ah. No.
2: no! 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 No!
1: For context, yeah. everyone, uh, Romeo is. is Rhiannon's new dog. <laughs> Wherefore art thou? Thou is downstairs.
2: That is the worst thing he does. So he's not bad <laughs> overall.
1: <laughs> There's a scene where Varinus finds out that Verena has betrayed him, and he chokes her. He has to essentially get pulled back by Pullo. In our interview with Coral Amiga, she did speak about this scene and um, how difficult it was to shoot, not really knowing what she was getting herself into at the time.
2: I remember her saying, actually, she was prepared for kind of an even more aggressive mm. um, pretend assault and that Kevin was holding back, that you know he didn't want to traumatise her. And I think that was in response to, did you find this traumatic? And, yeah. and certainly her account of it makes it sound like it was treated as sensitively as you can a situation like this, given when it was shot.
1: Mm. I, I think part of Verena's is even holding back in this scene. You can actually see that a little bit terrible scene to have to watch. I didn't enjoy that one. But anyway, Antony leaves Rome to take up his post as Supreme Governor of Egypt and the Eastern Provinces, which I think is how the narrator puts it.
2: Yeah. No, I mean, it's not a thing because Egypt isn't a province yet. Mm. And supreme, I don't know what supreme governor means anyway, but governor <laughs> would sense when it's a province. It's anachronistic and wrong, but we know he's moving east. That's the important thing. And he is powerful there. I mean, there are a lot of eastern provinces and he will have power over them and he'll start using that power.
1: Maybe it's just a bit of narrative flourish from the newsreader. People at Rome yeah. won't know any difference. so. <laughs> <laughs>
2: And they probably would at the time. He has a load of lictors ahead of him.
1: So when he goes to say goodbye to Attia, which is mm. my other favorite scene from this episode. Oh. I, I don't know why. I just, oh. I just really liked it.
2: You suck the old thing.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. He had that wall <laughs> of soldiers stopping him from getting close to her. You can tell that he doesn't want to cause a fight, but at the same time, he wants to say goodbye to her. That main centurion has got, as Robin Williams used to put it, a chin that you could open a can with.
2: Mm.
1: It was a really nice kind of scene. And I I think um, my favourite part of it is just how exhausted Mark Antony looks by everything. He sees this as defeat slinking out of Rome. And I still don't know what his intentions are to Artia. Is he going to send for her? Is that being honest? Is that being earnest? When the time
0: comes... I'll send for you. When will that be? Who can say? We must be patient. Promise me,
2: promise me you'll send for me. On my life. I promise. I mean, you know, he's a love rat, isn't he? Yes. It'll certainly turn out like that. He, (laughs) He betrays her for political power. And then he betrays her again with, I don't think this is a spoiler for anybody, with Cleopatra. Mm. He's ruthless in his own way. But I guess certainly I, as a viewer, don't give him that adjective quite so often because it's not as naked and cold as Octavian's ambition. Mm. It's kind of confused with Antony. He has emotions involved, I guess. That's the thing. Maybe that's his downfall. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, way too much emotions. It's already cold and clear for Octavian.
1: Mm. So Varinus, who is, it seems, ashamed of his conduct, wants to run away to Egypt, run away to somewhere exotic and be in the sun as a punishment, so arranges to go with Mark Antony. Mark Antony says to him, do stoic types turn to drink when they're disappointed with life or something along the lines of that? I don't know if that's a, a dig at anyone that he's previously worked with or known in the Senate or anything like that. Do Stoic types turn to drink? I don't know.
2: Not if they remain Stoic types, because they remain in control. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a bit of a dig at Varinus, because he's had these high principles. He's never very sympathetic towards him. It's just not Anthony's way, I guess.
1: No, he just recognises a good, loyal soldier, uh, which Varinus will be to the end. So, yeah. We get a scene, and I think this is just moving the episode slash storyline along, with Agrippa breaking up with Octavia. I found it strange that Agrippa managed to get smuggled into the kitchen and that's something that Mark Antony didn't achieve. So somehow Agrippa got (laughs) past all the guards.
2: Well, I've got no answer to that, but it didn't bother me at the time. I hadn't thought of it till you brought it up.
1: Uh, I think Agrippa is very ashamed that he's betrayed his friend and that it's finally caught up with him now that he's been caught, literally caught up with him. (laughs) So yeah. And Octavia is having a baby and she's not sure who the father is. In real life, that's Mark Antony, as far as we're concerned.
2: Yeah, I mean, I'm sure we've mentioned before that the affair between Agrippa and Octavia is something that the series invents. Mm. Octavia always gets depicted as the perfect wife and mother, and never any question that her children are Antony's. Or whichever husband she's married to at the time, she has others. But, it, you know, Agrippa is depicted as moral and right, isn't he? He's a bit of a Verenus, a younger version of Verinus, yeah. that he does the right thing. Although the affair with Octavia wasn't the right thing. But when he breaks up with her, he really stresses how Octavian is the pater familias. He has legal and moral rights over that family. Therefore, he has to be obeyed Yeah. by both Agrippa and Octavia.
1: In this episode, we get kind of like the, the culmination of this collegium storyline with, uh, Pullo getting into a big street fight. Well, it's Pullo and Gaia versus everyone is the perspective I kind of got. I'm exaggerating it there, but Pullo who Memeo thinks for some reason is reasonable. Memio mm-hmm. thinks that he can somehow bargain with Pullo and work with him and Pullo?
2: Do they not know him?
1: Pullo has a straight face, which, if anything, I think made him more dangerous in this scene. uh, Up until the point where he headbutts Memeo and bites out his tongue. Did you watch that scene? I did. Yeah. Okay. (laughs) My only question for you: Should Pullo be wearing what looks to be gladiator armor? That's possibly a, a callback to Russell Crowe, maybe. And is it just me, or did the collegium seem to have standards?
2: There's no indication that Collegia had that. And if it were a standard, then I think it would be a major faux pas on mm. the part of a collegium, because they belong to legions, and that's a really important part of their identity. I mean, the Collegium has sort of, they've developed it in a way that pulls away from the evidence we have for Collegia in antiquity, and that's fine. That's the way they've decided to do that. And I guess maybe having banners, I, I don't know any evidence that they had them. But as I say, the Collegium has become such a different kind of beast that mm. I wasn't too bothered by that. The armor looked sort of cross between gladiatorial and medieval And especially Gaia taking part. I think you liked that. I was, I was a bit <laughs> thrown by it. It seemed a bit off kilter to me, but, you know, it was fine. And even the biting out of the tongue, just if we're talking about tone, I don't know, Titus Andronicus is one of my favourite Shakespeare plays and that's extremely bloody and it was kind of playing into that sort of violence and really visceral, quite literally. Mm. You know. That's fine and I don't think it's antithetical to Polo's character. He's frequently out of control and yes, if yep. you move against him, then he's not going to hold back, is he?
1: Yeah, no, all good. Look, I, I like the scene. I think it was very keeping in tone, and I think it was the only way that that storyline could really end, considering the direction mm. it had taken. So, yeah. So, Antony has now left Rome. So, we've got two episodes to go, and he enters Egypt with a remixed version of the theme.
2: Gone a bit oriental. Woo. <laughs> yeah,
1: I, I liked it. I appreciated that they, they've gone for those kind of sounds, rather than just playing the, the Roman imperial theme going in there, Anthony goes into the throne room and Caesarian is the one who's on the throne. And Mm -hmm. uh, we get a kind of a a low key muted greeting from Cleopatra who's standing off to the side. It's not really quite the entrance that I expected from the queen, but it's good to see her again.
2: Yes. Yeah. I mean, she's, she's a really interesting character, both as a character from antiquity and the way she's been depicted, but also the way she's characterized here. Just slightly off point of Cleopatra, but I think it's worth mentioning that it I like the way that they've now got Polo in Rome and Verena's in Egypt as a way of tying that together. So our two main characters are in the kind of important sites yep. of the rest of the series.
1: One in each corner, yeah, of the action.
2: Mm. And I think everyone watching probably already knows that the conflict with Egypt, the conflict between Octavian versus Antony Cleopatra is what we're heading towards and now we're primed for it.
1: Mm. So I guess that's it. I I quite like the episode. I've now seen it about 5 times I think <laughs> between recording this podcast and interviewing our guests and there's still quite a lot that I like about it on each view.
2: I'll just say I always like the episodes better after talking to you about them. So um <laughs> I like it better when I've pulled it apart. And that might just be my weirdness.
1: Well, if I can tick off a few things, Jocasta calling Posca my little caramel, uh, quite, <laughs> quite a highlight. That dinner scene, which was tense and terrible, was also The dinner a scene was great. Yeah. Yeah, you're yeah. right. I do like Cleopatra turning up in this episode. I quite like the street fight and kind of being overshadowed by everything that's happening. The death of Irene was just, you know, very touching and showed, yet again, a different side of Rome. You've been listening to Raising Standards, an occasional rewatch podcast in which we take a fond look at HBO's Rome with Rhiannon Evans and Matt Smith, also special guests Carl Franklin and Todd Ellis Kessler. If you like raising standards, you can subscribe in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or any other handy podcasting platform. Please leave a review, they are always very appreciated. You can like raising standards on the Emperors of Rome Facebook page, and you can follow us on Twitter. Rhiannon is at Dr. Rhiannon Evans, I am at Nightlight Guy, and the podcast is at Rome Podcast. That's it today for raising standards. So until the next episode, I'm Matt Smith. You've been fantastic, and thanks for listening.
3: Cleopatra.